I opened my computer and the words J. Notaboom appeared with a box asking for my password. The only problem is I didn't know what the words J. Notaboom meant and I didn't have a password. I couldn't get any further in my understanding in this mystery because I didn't know the password. Now, it wasn't long before Casey buzzed me and said that there was a Mr. Notaboom who wanted to talk to me. I picked up the phone and found myself talking to someone in Omaha, Nebraska who had my computer, and I evidently had his. (laughs) We had accidentally switched through the security line to the airport the previous day. It could happen to you. (laughs) Had Mr. Notaboom not called me, I would have been at a complete loss. Without knowing that password, I, I couldn't open up that computer and understand whose it was or where it belonged, let alone reason to where my identical computer had gotten to. Passwords are crucial knowledge. Am I the only one who doesn't seem to have a great memory for my own passwords and therefore has app after app on my phone that are absolutely useless? (laughs) I know those of you under 50 probably understand how to deal with that. They're like passes in geography, these passwords. You know, if you know the password, you can get everything inside. So in a gap at a mountain chain, All the traffic naturally passes through that gap. All else before you on the other side is there for you to explore. But you must come through this point. Gain this and you potentially gain it all. Lose this and you potentially lose it all. That's kind of the point after a year or so of miracles that we find ourselves at in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the point. Knowing who he is, is, as it were, the password to understanding everything that's been going on in his ministry and through his ministry to understand what's been going on in your own life and in all of history. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. That's our passage for this morning. If you open your Bibles, you take the one that's provided there, you can turn to page 816. And find this passage, if you're not used to looking at a Bible, the chapter number are the large numbers, that's 11, and the verse numbers are the small numbers. And we're looking at verses 20 to 30. So in our passage, Jesus warns, even threatens, and then he clearly explains, and finally and sweetly, he woos the people. In verses 20 to 24, he warns them about their lack of repentance, which is fundamentally they're not acknowledging him as the Messiah, not understanding who he is. And then verses 25 to 27, he clearly explains about himself and his unique role in bringing people to know God. And then in the last few verses of the chapter, 28 to 30, he invites the laboring and heavy laden to him for rest. So, Jesus first calls them to repent of their refusal to recognize him, and then he explains theologically the central point that he is, 
And finally, he beckons people who long for peace and rest simply to come to him. So I pray that as we examine these verses, who Jesus is and what he did and does will become more clear to you and that you will come to find in your own life, as Jesus puts it here, that his burden is light. Listen to our passage now, Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I pray that God will help each one of us to hear Christ's call this morning. First, we see in verses 20 to 24, Christ's call to repent. That's really what this denunciation here of Capernaum and the surrounding villages are. Uh, Chorazon and Bethsaida were villages near Capernaum. See them there listed in verse 21. Chorazon is two miles north. Bethsaida was three miles east. A couple of miracles are mentioned specifically as being done in Bethsaida. And then Tyre and Sidon were famously prideful pagan cities. You can go to Isaiah 23 to see more about them. But Capernaum there in verse 23 is the real point of these first few verses. It's on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is called by Matthew up in chapter 9, verse 1, his own city, meaning Jesus' own city. The people here had literally seen Jesus and his mighty works, and they didn't seem to care. They were indifferent. They got a kind of revelation about God and the truth of God that Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had never gotten. They got the incarnate Son of God himself in their midst, doing mighty works to show who he was. And they, well, you can read the Gospels. A couple chapters before, in chapter 9, verse 24, it says they laughed at him. This passage in verses 20 to 24 is a call to repentance. Very much like Jonah. When he came prophesying a judgment that never came to Nineveh, it's because the denunciation of Nineveh that Jonah brought was a prophecy aimed at those who were then alive 
who could hear this warning of the coming judgment and receive it and repent, which, praise God, the people in Nineveh did. So that's how this is functioning for Capernaum and the people there at the time. Christ is warning the crowds, as they're called up in verse 7, about the bad that they should avoid, the bad of God's judgment. He calls on them to properly fear God and His judgment for not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. They should repent by recognizing Jesus. That was the very point of all the miracles He had been doing among them. One of the most basic points we learn about reading through Matthew and really all the Gospels is that the purpose of each miracle was to reveal a little bit more of who Jesus is and of what he'd come to do. He had just been making this very point to John the Baptist, remember? In the passage we last studied in Matthew's Gospel, the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist was wondering, are you the Messiah? I mean, I know you are, but you're not, you're not acting like it. And so Jesus, through the messenger that John sent, begins to walk him through Isaiah, remind him the signs that would be there, works the Messiah would do, show him these were the very works he had been doing. So that's what Jesus was doing in his miracles. Even as the least in the kingdom of God was seen to be greater than the greatest of earlier ages, greater than John the Baptist, so here in this passage, the sins of ignoring and rejecting Jesus were seen to be worse than the sins of the earlier ages. So part of what's going on here is simply that the scale of spiritual vastness had changed with the coming of the Son of God incarnate. So the rejection of Him is the rejection of God in the most personal and concentrated way that could be imagined. And while His miracles did display His power and indicate His identity, isn't it interesting that mere miracles never created faith? Do you think you need to see a miracle to believe? Well, then you're different than the people in Capernaum because they saw lots of miracles and didn't believe. Miracles must in and of themselves not, must not be the source of true saving faith in Christ. Friends, to have a little theology sidebar here, this is what theologians have called the ineffectual call. That is where there is a call Every miracle is a call to recognize who Jesus is, to repent, to come to Him, but it doesn't have the effect of bringing about repentance and faith. Jesus' miracles and their accompanying teaching were informing people of who Jesus was, but they didn't in themselves create saving faith in Him. These mighty works which were given to announce Jesus' presence were met with cool indifference in the very towns which witnessed His ministry. So the one who had come to be their savior would become their judge. So many people just assume today that we end at death. That when we die, that's the end of our story, that we are annihilated. But here we're encountering this teaching that we encounter throughout the whole Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, that we humans have been made to survive death that we, all of us, continue to exist beyond death, but that we don't, therefore, all have the same experience after death. We don't all go to the Elysian fields in a perpetual sunset state or work on the fluffy clouds playing music and enjoying grapes. 
Rather, the souls of those who believe in God and are trusting in His provision in Christ live with Him forever under His blessing. And those who do not, but who have died in their sins, continue to exist under the judgment of God. There are many questions I can't answer about this. But this much is clear. Any appearance of neutrality ends at death. You and I will continue to exist forever, but with the charade of indifference toward God removed. And it is the fear of that fate that is to wake us from our indifference and inattention to Jesus and to cause us to ask who Jesus is and why he's come. The fact that Jesus has come and has brought us even more light and truth increases our liability to God's judgment of us. There will be an evident fairness in God's judgment. I think that's one of the things we see in this passage. God will want to be seen to be fair. And where there is more revelation, there is even more responsibility. Understanding increases responsibility. Thus it was in God's pity that God sent Jonah to denounce Nineveh by proclaiming the truth of the judgment that was coming on them because they had deserved it by their sin. Friend, I pray that God will do the same to you in your heart this morning. If you've come assuming that the true God does nothing by nature but approve of you and me and support us and celebrate us eternally, that's a very popular belief in this world, and it is against what the Bible clearly teaches. That very much depends on our relationship with Him. My friend, if you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to give special study to Jesus Christ. No one will be saved merely by respectable living. As I mentioned a moment ago, it was respectable at Capernaum to laugh at Jesus. When he said that the, the girl was not dead but just asleep, they just laughed at him. But it was wrong. And as a rejection of Jesus, it was a sin even greater than Sodom's immoral, immorality or Tyre's pride. Friend, imagine a day when you're most significant regrets would be confirmed eternally. When those twinges of conscience or concern that you had could be brought vividly to light as the gospel is proved to be true and right, and you are proved wrong, just as your own conscience had warned you. Heed this warning here. Don't trust in your own ignorance or uncertainty as acceptable to God to prove your innocence. Or at least your lack of sufficient understanding to be held responsible. God has made us all with consciences which imperfectly, though truly, instruct us and reprove us and bear witness against us. If you want to know more about that, Spend a little time this afternoon reading Romans chapter 1 to 3. My friend, commit to work to understand Jesus better. See who Jesus taught that he is, who he was and is, why he came, what he has to do with you. We'll help you with that. Uh, we have many members of this church who would be happy to sit down and go through Mark's gospel with you in a study we do called Christianity Explained, 
or Christianity Explored, written by an Australian Anglican minister. It's a good, simple way to just get the basics of Jesus. If you think that would help you, talk to one of us at the doors on the way out. Some Christians here today may have questions about degrees of reward and punishment because Jesus does use this language here of more bearable and more tolerable. And while there are a few other passages of Scripture you could go to for similar expressions, I think the purpose of Jesus' language here is to highlight the significance of the current sin that he's confronting and to dissuade them from it and to call them to repentance now. Every day we experience this same indifference to Jesus, don't we? It's the nature of this fallen world to encourage us to try to live without thought of the author of our life, without thought of the coming account we must give to him. By nature, we too often try to live with every circumstance as good as we can get it, and as if we can sustain some kind of positive experience indefinitely. But what a sad exercise that is in this world. Time is against us in every way, from the fitful witnesses of our own consciences to the pain of shifting circumstances or the defeat of declining abilities and opportunities, God kindly allows us smaller defeats to call us to surrender to Him before we would suffer the great defeat, going into the great day of giving an account to Him under our own power, relying only on our own goodness. Friend, have you thought of thanking God for the most recent defeat you've suffered in your own life? In a way, He might use that for your spiritual good to wake you up and turn you to Him? One of the most shocking things to the crowds who first heard the words of Jesus here was the assumption that Jewish cities could be in the same trouble and even worse trouble than these famously evil Gentile pagan cities. That would have been shocking when Jesus said that that was the case. But that's exactly what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Again, friends, we shouldn't just assume that God's blessing is on us because of our religious heritage. Nor should we assume that no repentance will come in those that we love and pray for. Don't be discouraged, friends, by current rejection of the Lord among your family and friends. You may not have heard the last word from the very person that is most on your heart. The fact that they are on your heart may be a good sign of God's intention to save them. Be patient and pray. You don't need to go do miracles around them. But pray that they'll read of Jesus and his miracles. And by what they read will be led to a new understanding of who Jesus is and why he has come. Let's continue to pray for ourselves and for each other as we consider how great our responsibility is to teach and preach the truth and to respond to the truth that we get to hear here. I pray that even these very denunciations of, that Jesus gives out here will be given to us to instruct us to have faith in him and that we'll begin to hear in them the invitation which there is and which becomes clearer as we go through this passage, as we move from Christ's call to repent to number two, Christ's call to recognize. If that was Christ's call to repent in verses 20 to 24, we see Christ's call to recognize 
in verses 25 to 27. His unique role in making the Father known is what he was explaining here. Look again at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Matthew let us know that it's at that time, he specifically let us know that, that it was at the same time that Jesus was denouncing the unbelieving response from his fellow Jews, that he broke into this prayer to his heavenly Father about his work of revealing the Father. He was helping those around him to better understand who he is and what he'd come to do. We've been made in God's image, but yet we've rejected him by our sins. In his love, he sent his only son to live a life of perfect trust in his heavenly Father, and then to die on the cross as a substitute, bearing God's wrath against all of us who would ever turn from our sins and trust in him. And then God raised him from the dead. He presented his sacrifice to his heavenly Father. He accepted it. And we are called now to turn and trust in him. This is why Jesus came. He is the way to know the Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father to those we read here in verse 27. He chooses. Thus, the statement of faith that this church adopted at its first meeting in February of of 1878 that we read earlier today in the service at the beginning. He chooses. What do you think about that? I think when we think about that, it humbles us as we realize that only He can do what we cannot. Only He can save us. We haven't and can't save ourselves. I think understanding this gives us hope. Hope that if He's begun a good work in us, He will complete it. Hope for others that there is no one who is hopeless if the Son chooses Him. No one in your family, no one in your workplace, no one you know is beyond His reach. How many of us sitting here today were surprising answers to prayers? I happen to personally know there there are a good number of us who we were surprising to people when we turned out to be a Christian. They did not expect it of us. We did not expect it of us. Friends, I don't think those surprises have stopped. There are future surprises to come. There are people you don't that you you know now who don't follow Christ, who I trust if the Lord tarries in five years, they're going to be teaching core seminars here. Friends, there is more to come. This story of redemption has not ended. We're catching it midstream. It's the work of the Son to reveal the Father, and we have no reason to think His work is done. It's completed. It'll be done when we hear that last trump. But before that trumpet sounds, that work continues. And the Son continues to reveal the Father. Now, to think theologically about this, another sidebar. If the miracles with the teaching in verses 20 to 24 were a call to many who did not believe, at least initially, and so were an example of a real, though an ineffectual call, 
here, if you look at that word reveal in verse 25, and chooses to reveal in verse 27, this is what theologians call the effectual call. That is, this is the call that does not fail, the call which will result in saving faith. It's striking, isn't it, that Jesus thanks God both for revealing these things and for hiding them. Did you notice that when you read this? It is good and right to thank God for His justice against those who reject His Messiah. And it is good and right to thank God for His merciful revelation to so many of those, none of whom in and of themselves have deserved our salvation, that he saves. That's really the devotional punch of verses 25 to 27 here. The very fact that Jesus can so directly move from denouncing sin to thanking God challenges us. And Matthew wants us to know it's at that time. He's so clear there in verse 25. But of course, it's rooted in the fact that as we see in verse 26, It was God's gracious will. It was his good pleasure to do as he did. When does God ever not do what pleases himself? God's will was being accomplished even in Israel's rejection of the Messiah. More on that, read Paul's last statements in the book of Acts, in Acts 28. Or read Romans 9 to 11. God was working his purposes. This is how Paul explained the gospel going out to the nations. God is the one who, according to Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, while that might scandalize a bunch of Southern Baptists today, no first century Jew is surprised by that. Every first century Jew knows God's sovereign. There's no question about that. No, what might have turned their heads and raised a skeptical eyebrow back then was the unusually intimate way Jesus referred to Yahweh as my Father. That was not a done thing. Even the Our Father he did in the Lord's Prayer was unusual, but being corporate was a little bit better because because God, the Lord, referred to Israel as my son. So you could, in some corporate sense, refer to God as our Father, though it was an unusual way to do it. But for Jesus to so personally refer to Yahweh, the Lord, as my Father would have struck them at their hearts and would have made them wonder, what is he talking about? And what he was talking about is even in that small, singular, possessive, first-person pronoun, he was showing his unique relationship to the Father that he was explaining in these verses, in verses 25 to 27. Jesus had referred to God like this up in chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, as my Father. But here in our passage, he actually stops and he explains this relationship. And it sounds a lot like John's gospel, doesn't it? It's like a little island of John in the Sea of Matthew right here. It sounds like John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. My non-Christian friend, you may come to Christ long before you understand all this theology we're talking about right now. A lot of us here today who are Christians, we become Christians because we decide to follow Christ, which is real and true. That has to happen. But then later we start asking the question, now why did I decide to follow Christ? And then we start getting into a whole bunch of theology. You don't have to understand all that theology before you come to Christ. What you need to know is that there is one who beckons you to him. 
that calls you to Him today. The Son who would introduce you to the Father, bring you to know the Father. That's who you're called to respond to today. Of course, here in verses 25 and 26, we learn that the truly mature would not be those who externally were most confident of their own qualifications. They would be those who were responsive to God's Word, like the fishermen that he was training even then to lead his churches. These disciples, he calls them here, little children. You see that? Verse 25. Little children, insignificant in the world's eyes, people with no outstanding religious credit or advanced theological degrees or formal rabbinical training. I love how J.C. Ryle put it. Let us watch against pride in every shape, pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness, pride in our own deserts. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Let us pray for and cultivate humility. Let us seek to know ourselves aright and to find out our place in the sight of a holy God. The beginning of the way to heaven is to feel that we are in the way to hell and to be willing to be taught of the Spirit. My friend, if you're here today and you don't know God, pray that Christ would reveal Himself to you, even as I'm preaching. We thank Him for His revealing ministry among us. Do notice here in verse 27 that Jesus clearly teaches that He is the only way you will ever come to know God the Father. I hope this leads you to study Jesus in His life and teaching and come to trust Him and to believe in Him. We Christians humbly trust God and thank Him for His wisdom in hiding Himself from some who may think better of themselves than they should, even as He reveals Himself to some of us more surprising ones. In both activities, God really gives us a preview of the coming final reality. And Jesus, teaching about it here, prompts all of us now who hear to respond in faith in Christ. Are you surprised how much teaching there is in this prayer in verses 25 and 26? <clears throat> so many times I hear people say, prayer is just me talking to God. Well, no prayer is ever less than you talking to God. But many prayers are much more than merely you talking to God. So if you take every prayer you find in the prophets, uh, you'll find many of them are chapters long theological treatises. Augustine's entire book, Confessions, is one long prayer. Uh, at the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, they would break the assembly's discussions for days of prayer and fasting. And when they would have a day of prayer and fasting, they would have a, a minister prepare a sermon for an hour. And then a minister to prepare to lead in prayer for an hour. And then a minister to prepare for a sermon for two hours. And then a minister to lead in prayer for two hours. And they understood that those prayers are every bit as much an object of preparation as other forms of teaching. You'll notice that here. We have some prayers in our church which are brief supplication, prayers of intercession. We do those very commonly, just as we see each other in the hallway. Uh, perhaps you did it already this morning uh, at your breakfast table. Um, we'll, we'll do them tonight in the service when we pray. But you'll see that other prayers, like the prayers we prayed here in our morning service, some of them are longer. Uh, they're prepared. They are a, a kind of teaching. Just like Jesus here, in this prayer that's recorded 
for our benefit in verses 25 and 26 is teaching. And what we have to notice here in verse 27 is Jesus' exalted view of himself. You see, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And he refers to himself as the Son of God. Note the Father's union to the Son in this passage. The Father and the Son are distinguishable, but they're together. There's a distinction between them, but there is no separation. There's a precedence in the Father over the Son, but not in any way to diminish the Son. Jesus is clearly proclaiming that He is divine. He and the Father are one, but they're not the same. And it's in this teaching of Jesus that we begin to see the revelation of the Trinity. Sometimes people will say, oh, the Trinity, that word's never in the Bible. But that's true, but the doctrine is there. The Trinity is a nice summary exactly of this kind of teaching of Jesus. Thus, in a few minutes, we will baptize in obedience to Jesus' own teaching. Someone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit understanding that we're baptizing them in the one name of the triune God. Think how humble such an exalted one was, sent by God to suffer the rejection of the likes of us. And will you and I be proud, unwilling to be rejected for him? Let's pray that we would follow in the way of Christ and be content to be seen as of little account in this world's estimate. We're called here not wise and understanding in verse 25. No, we're called little children. We're like those we read of earlier in 1 Corinthians 1 in that antiphonal reading. Not many wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Friends, what a glorious freedom to turn loose of pride's care about what others think of us, how others would evaluate us. What a blessed rest is there for the soul who trusts in Christ. Knowing the truth of God's election is the basis of our salvation and our security is a wonderfully humbling and restful doctrine. It can't be imperiled by other people's ill thoughts of us. What Jesus is teaching here about God's sovereignty is fundamental to the rest for our souls that he's just about to invite us into in the last verses of the chapter. This is what we're about, friends, as a church. Not purported physical miracles, which even when they're real, don't always lead people to trust in Jesus and know God. But we're about the Son of God who has come to bring us to know His heavenly Father. And so we come together on the first day of the week to sing the praises of the God beyond all praising, who all for love's sake becamest man. And finally, then we turn from Christ's call to recognize His unique role in making the Father known, here in verses 25 to 27, to number three, Christ's call to himself and to rest. I thought about calling this point just Christ's call to rest because it, it fits with recognize and fits with repent. And the, the preacher in me just can't, has a hard time resisting the R-E, 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 you know, like you ever really care about that. Um, but it's not a call merely to rest. It's a call to himself. He does not say come to rest. He says come to me and I will give you rest. It's a call to Christ. 
Look again in these last three verses of our chapter, beginning at verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is Christ's invitation to come to him. This is his call then to rest. This is the good we are called to embrace. Even as the verses above these remind us of the Bible's teaching to fear the Lord, so these verses bring to mind Scripture's command to love the Lord. And so these direct come, take, learn, come to us today again as we hear them. And it is true that for some here, it may be an ineffectual call. But I pray not for you. I pray for you it will be an effectual call. In just a moment, we're going to hear a testimony of a dear sister who was sitting in church when God used the, the hymns and the sermon to call her. And she had saving faith in Christ. I pray for you that this call is not simply a call that you hear me preach, but that in your own heart you hear Christ's invitation to you in this. Some have noted that this call to take up my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, sounds so different than what Jesus had just said in chapter 10 when he talked in verse 38 about taking his cross. And they wondered, how could these two fit together? Taking the cross and taking a yoke that's supposed to be easy. I don't really think it's that hard to understand. We are made to lean under the cross. And he intends to hold us up. We are made to lean, and he intends to hold us up. In fact, the importance of our own weakness was demonstrated throughout the ministry of Paul. Every time he was imprisoned, it seems like the people thought like, oh no, this is going to stop the gospel. Every time he writes them, by the way, you don't need to worry about me being in prison. This is actually going to forward the gospel. My weakness is the platform for God's strength to be made evident. So far are these weaknesses, things which hinder the gospel, they are the means God will use to push the gospel forward. Now, friends, we're in Washington, D.C., and we're on Capitol Hill, and this is the exact opposite. If there's any place on earth that has no ears for this message, it is where we are standing. Some of you make the money out of which you tithe to this church, teaching people how to appear invulnerable, like they had no problems. Nothing can touch them. The Christian truth is the exact opposite of that. We all are in desperate need. Our only chance eternally is for us to understand that need, confess that need, and turn to Christ to fill that need. We need forgiveness. We need acceptance. And we can gain that not from our own strength, but we have to lean under the cross. And he is committed to support us and to bring us all the way home to himself. And this is how we can know real rest. 
when we are functioning as we are literally made to function in God's image, relying on Him, displaying Him even as we rely on Him. We display the truth about Him to His creation. Christ is appealing here in verse 28 to all those who labor and are heavy laden. This is how Jesus described the Jews under the Pharisees. Do you remember that? Later in Matthew, Matthew 23, verse 4, he says, they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the people's shoulders. That yoke uh, that Jesus mentioned in verse 29 is just a metaphor for submission and service. Uh, When Peter was appealing to the other apostles in Jerusalem in Acts 15, he mentioned placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Friends, perhaps you've come today and you don't feel worthy of Jesus. Maybe you feel like you would just be a burden to him. But Jesus has come exactly for those who are heavy laden, for those who are burdened, for those who are troubled. Could it be that he's come for you? Why not? Why would you think he hasn't come for you? Whatever it is that you're getting your identity from now, turn that over to Jesus. He's the one you are meant to serve with your whole being, to fear and to love, to obey and to delight in. He will give you rest from moralism, rest from works righteousness, rest from self-justification, rest from all the ways you would try to make yourself right with God, acceptable to God. He will give you rest from trying to earn your own salvation. Friends, law-keeping can be a terrible bondage, can't it? I'm not encouraging you to immorality, but I am encouraging you not to trust in your salvation in your own morality as the basis. It's Christ that we rely on. Positively, this rest is peace. It's the security that comes through a right relationship with God. We are being invited into the rest of God that he began in Genesis chapter 2 on that seventh day after he'd made all that there is. We read there that he rested, that rest which is full of satisfaction after work well done and completed. This is the rest that comes with nearness to him for those he loved. He promised it to Moses. He held out this promise to his Old Testament people. We read about it in Hebrews 4. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Friend, what are you looking to to give you rest? How's it working? Did you meet your financial goals? Did you meet your weight loss goals? Did you get that degree or that certificate? Did she finally agree? What goal have you been looking for? Has achieving that goal given you the rest and the peace that you've needed? How many times do you have to be taught the same lesson? You aren't meant to be satisfied by the achievement of these smaller goals. One of the great truths that God teaches us is that for sinners like us, there is no true and lasting rest apart from our repentance. Christ frees us from wrongly serving our sins and wrongly trying to save ourselves by our own good works. 
Both are false and lying masters, sins and good works. And note here that Jesus invites us to himself personally. He has made himself his person central to our salvation. And he invites us to come, that is to have faith in him. This is what the Jews of the day would have expected to come from following the Torah. That's how life would come. Choose life. But how do you really choose life? You really choose life by choosing to follow Jesus. I pray that we as Christians will be marked as being those who look for the laboring, who look for the heavy laden, who look for the tired and the burdened, and work to bring them true rest. What would it mean for you to look like an agent of this kind of rest in your neighborhood, in your business, in your school, or among your friends? Are you able to lay down at night and rest in the faith of the God who can rule the world without your aid for maybe a few hours? He can take care of things without your assistance? Can you do that as a statement of faith in Him and as a foretaste of the good rest you have coming? Good rest that we have now should fuel our hope and our eternal rest to come. In verse 29 here, Jesus invites us to learn from Him. Can you learn from Him this rest in Him? Jesus has been anointed in order to teach us. He seems to be inviting His disciples who were hearing Him into that same relationship that He had as the Son with the Father. It sounds, again, like John 17. It sounds like the fully rested up energy that we read of in Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Friends, this is the energetic rest Christ is promising. Not in activity, but a full delight in considering all that Christ is sufficiently for us. This is the rest that you can know as you bring your deepest desires to God and leave them with Him as with one whom you could never trust too much. Your whole person, he's saying here in verse 29, rest for your souls. Your whole person is invited to find rest in Christ. Sometimes people misunderstand Christianity as this kind of constantly frowning, try harder message. I'm thinking like people like that were brought up in a home that called themselves Christians, but where they never really read the Bible much, and they didn't go to church much. And if they did go to church, the preaching there was lousy. Because that's pretty much the opposite of the Christian gospel the try-harder idea. That better reflects gnawing needs internal to us than the fullness of joy that the Scripture shows us there is in God Himself. God has bought us the greatest rest there could ever be, peace with Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that rest is His yoke seeming easy and even His burden seeming light. We read in 1 John 5, 3 that even God's commandments are not burdensome. 
Brothers and sisters, God has called us not to be heavy laden, but to peace. We're gathering right now to rejoice in the certain victory that we have in Christ. We are a meeting of those pilgrims whose burdens have rolled off our backs and down into the tomb of Christ and been swallowed up there. We are all those pilgrims getting together, rejoicing at the beginning of the week around Christ's empty tomb. We know a kind of freedom and lightness even amidst the trials of this world. But we share many things with each other together in Christ. We have differences, certainly. We have a thousand different ways to relax, but we have one rest in Christ that we share together. So when Jesus invites us here in verse 28 to come to me, he's inviting us out of our own imagined strengths and into his very real strength. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul referred to the thorn in his flesh. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Friends, when we respond to this invitation and come to the Lord, we are saved eternally. All of our burdens become temporary. That's so good. We're going to say that all together now. The sentence is, all of our burdens become temporary. All of our burdens become temporary. When we come to Christ, all of our burdens become temporary. Loneliness will vanish. Hungry ambition will be quietened. Painful family quarrels will resolve. Poverty will be swallowed up with plenty. Wandering by settling down. Sickness by health. Loss by gain. Division by unity. Strife by peace. Restlessness by rest. Brokenness by restoration. Exhaustion by vigor. Confusion by clarity. Even death itself will hold us only temporarily. But how could all this be? Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we rest on him. Will you? Let's pray together. Lord God, you know those tempting siren calls we hear away from Christ and away from the rest and peace that you promise in Him. Lord, pray that all of these temptations would drop their masks. Pray that we would see them truly and accurately for what they are and what they will be revealed to be eternally. 
Bring us to Christ, we pray. Give us rest in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.